This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. Now here's a good question. How was it that a cult inspired by the execution of an obscure criminal in a long-vanished empire came to exercise such a transformative and enduring influence on the world? That we take for granted this enduring influence is the main point of Tom Holland's new book, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World, published by Basic Books. Holland is an award-winning historian of the ancient world and regular contributor to the Times of London, the Wall Street Journal, and the New York Times. He observes that Romans saw worship of the crucified Jesus as scandalous, obscene, and grotesque. And yet this same Roman Empire would eventually come to worship Jesus as God. Holland writes, The relationship of Christianity to the world that gave birth to it is then paradoxical. The faith is at once the most enduring legacy of classical antiquity and the index of its utter transformation. In our own day, Holland finds pervasive Christian influence everywhere he looks in the West. The self-evident truths of the American Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and endowed with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, are not remotely self-evident to a student of antiquity or other world religions. But that's the genius of this Christian revolution, Holland argues. He writes, The surest way to promote Christian teachings as universal was to portray them as deriving from anything other than Christianity. Holland joins me on Gospelbound to discuss why Christianity is the most difficult legacy of the ancient world to write about, and why this Christian revolution is the greatest story ever told. Thank you, Tom, for joining me on Gospelbound. Thanks very much for having me. Well, Tom, you say Christianity is the most enduring and influential legacy of the ancient world, and yet also the most challenging for a historian to write about. So why did you? Um, it's it's often accepted, of course, that people who are, who are writing fiction will be drawing on, on their past, particularly perhaps on their, their childhood. But the same can be true of nonfiction writers as well. And um, Dominion is a book that is peculiarly personal to me because it draws on the absolute wellsprings of my past, which perhaps I could just very briefly sketch out. Um, my, uh, I, I was brought up uh, in the Church of England. Um, my, my mother's a, a devout Christian. Um, so I went to church uh, unbelievably, considering how bad my voice is. Uh, I sang in the choir and I went to Sunday school and um, I enjoyed reading the Bible. But what I particularly enjoyed reading in the Bible was all the kind of bloody bits. Um, so I enjoyed Pharaoh's army being swept to their death by the Red Sea, and I enjoyed um, accounts of tent pegs being hammered through people's skulls, all that kind of stuff, plagues, you know, all that kind of thing, um, which uh, would probably suggest to your listeners that um, I was a, a horrible, bloodthirsty little boy, and, and that was entirely true. <laughs> um, and the awful thing is, is that uh, relative to um, my other interests, I actually found Christianity rather boring. Um, so I remember in Sunday school, 
um, that there was a, an illustrated Bible, and on the very first page they had Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, um, and there they were surrounded by animals, lions and parrots and snakes, of course, um, and there was also a brachiosaur. And this puzzled me because um, I was, you know, if, if I enjoyed Bible stories, the thing I was really obsessed by was uh, was dinosaurs, which were big and fierce and glamorous and extinct. And I knew that no human being had seen a brachiosaur. So I asked the Sunday school teacher and, 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 and she didn't even seem to see what the problem was, really. Um, so it was my first kind of, uh, the first kind of shadow that passed over my Christian faith, I suppose. Um, but it wasn't really that I was kind of having a Darwinian crisis of faith or anything like that. It was simply that um, I, I, I was I was kind of more stirred and excited by contemplating um, enormous prehistoric creatures than I was what I was hearing in the church. And in due course, when my interest in dinosaurs kind of migrated seamlessly into an interest of that other apex predator of, of, from, from, from ancient times, the Roman Empire, I was completely on the side of the Romans. So if you'd asked me, you know, Jesus or Pontius Pilate, I would totally have gone with Pontius Pilate, who had the eagles and the armor and, the, you know, the, 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 the purple and everything. And so that's why in due course, um, it wasn't so much that I, I kind of spectacularly lost my faith in a, a, a reverse Damascene conversion. It was just that it kind of faded before the blaze of my fascination with, with Rome and other ancient civilizations. And in due course, when I came to uh, write history as, as an adult and returned to the things that I had always been passionately interested in since childhood, um, I, I, I wrote about Rome and I wrote about other ancient civilizations as well. But the experience of trying to live in the heads of these ancient peoples as an adult uh, and to, to make them comprehensible, not just to my readers, but to myself, um, imposed strains on me that had, had not been there as, as a child, because I increasingly came to a realization that glamorous and fierce though the Romans had been, they were astonishingly alien. Um, to my way of thinking. And I increasingly found them kind of frightening. Um, and so I began to wonder, well, well, you know, what explains this, this cultural, this moral, this ethical chasm? And a bit like when you have a, an itch on the back and you're trying to kind of scratch it, and then you find it and you start scratching it. So it was with me that I began to realize that pretty much everything that explained differences between deep antiquity and the present day derived from Christianity. And I began to realize that more and more, that even on the most basic level, the language that I spoke, the words that I was pronouncing, these were shot through with Christian presumptions. And increasingly, it came to seem to me that, that, that when I look back at the pre-Christian world, there was a kind of a haze composed of a great, multi great multitude of um, dust particles. And these dust particles were Christian. And so... I've written Dominion to test that hypothesis, to test the hypothesis that, um, in a way, if you like, to kind of um, extend that metaphor, there is a kind of uh, a, a, a cloud of very, very fine dust particles that people in the West are constantly breathing in and being affected by and in being influenced by, even though they may not realize it. And these dust particles come from what I see as being the, the, the greatest cultural transformation in the history of humanity, which is the coming of Christianity. You say, Tom, that it's the fate of those who triumph 
to be taken for granted. But it does yeah. seem like we're in a position not merely where Christianity is taken for granted, but actively, in many corners at least, hated. Why is this the case when the West owes so much to this faith? Well, I, I, I think that um, Christianity, when it came, drew on the, the, the great inheritance of Hebrew Scripture and the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And you think of Isaiah saying that um, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And you, you think of how the prophets speak of how before the truth of the God that they worship, other gods will be revealed as merely idols made of, of, of stock or stone. Um, and that, that superstition has to be banished. And the Christians, early Christians, are the, the heirs to this, this inheritance. And so when they preach the gospel, they are speaking in similar terms. And, and so it is over the course of the conversion of the Roman Empire, and then after the collapse of the Roman Empire in the, in the West, when missionaries are going into the, the, the barbarian wilderness of, of Britain or Saxony or um, Hungary or whatever, this is the language that they're speaking. And the idea that um, the people who walk in darkness have to be brought into light becomes the great animating message of the, the, the medieval church. And it, it helps to inspire the construction of this astonishing and effectively revolutionary civilization that comes to exist in medieval Europe. But in turn, the very success of, um, of the medieval church breeds further demands for what in, in, in medieval Latin is called reformatio, the, 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 the desire to purify, to, to, to see born again, to baptize in the waters of purity, not just individual Christians, but the whole of Christendom, the whole of Christian society. And so it generates demands for a fresh spasm of reformatio, what we call the Reformation. And the Protestant reformers draw on this very ancient biblical language, just as, as the early Christians had done. But now their target is what they call the Church of Rome, popery. Uh, popery is identified with idolatry, with superstition, with the darkness from which the Christian people have to be redeemed. And this language is fundamental to the various forms of Protestantism that emerge in the wake of the Reformation. What then happens in the 18th century with the Enlightenment, and there's a clue in the word as to where this idea of Enlightenment is coming from, is that this primordial Christian language is appropriated by people who turn it not as the Protestant reformers had done against the Roman Church, but against Christianity itself. And so you get the paradox, say, in the French Revolution of a seemingly profoundly anti-clerical movement. It, 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 you know, it converts the great cathedral of Notre Dame in the heart of Paris uh, and, and, and reconsecrates it to, um, to a totally non-Christian deity. But the impulse that lies behind the French Revolution, the idea that the first should be last and the last should be first, for instance, um, the idea that they, there is a great apocalyptic day of judgment when the sheep and the goats will be divided. All this is, is clearly derivative of Christianity. And over the course of modernity, the, the, the ambition of, of those who look back to the Enlightenment is exactly what the ambition of Christian reformers had been, to purge 
the world of superstition, to topple idols and to bring people into enlightenment. And that essentially is the kind of paradoxical state that the West finds itself in now, that it, 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 its rejection of Christianity is founded on Christianity. And so the challenge, I think, for, um, for, for believing Christians, for, for those who subscribe to institutional forms of Christianity, is that there are large numbers of people and growing numbers of people beyond the limits of the formal churches who nevertheless subscribe to Christian doctrine without realizing that that's what they're subscribing to. Not merely that they don't realize that, but they actually think that Christianity is the thing that they must hate, the thing that they must oppose because they've been completely cut off. Well, it seems as though Christian apologists continue to wait and to make some of the points that you're making here as if people will wake up and realize, oh, okay, well, now I know where it comes from. I guess I should appreciate that. But I don't know that right now, Tom, I, I see a lot of that. So is there any situation you envision where, where all of a sudden the, you know, the, the, the sort of council of European leaders comes together who, after not even mentioning Christianity and describing their own heritage, suddenly right. say, oh, we don't really have a morality apart from Christianity. We don't have a story apart from Christianity. And suddenly things begin to shift. Well, I think um, I, I think specifically in Europe, but I think also in the United States, there are perhaps two things at, at play. Um, so you, you you alluded to um, the this document that was drawn up by the European Union. It was never actually passed, in which they European leaders were kind of describing the, the, the cultural heritage, and they referred to ancient Greece and Rome, and they referred to the Enlightenment, and obviously they were leaving something quite substantial in the middle, in the middle out right. of the equation. And the reason that they had to do this, the reason that they could they could refer to Greece and Rome and they could refer to the Enlightenment, but they couldn't refer to Christianity, is that they were casting uh, European values as, as somehow being universal. And Greece and Rome were sufficiently distant that, that, you know, that's fine. And the claims of the Enlightenment is that their values are, are universal. The genius of the modern West in, 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 in recent centuries has been that it's been able to export its, its profoundly Christian values, you know, concepts like human rights, the notion of the secular, all these things are deeply rooted in the seedbed of Christian history and, and Christian theology. But it's been able to export them to other regions of the world, the Islamic world, to India, to China, to Japan. Um, by casting them as universal. If they cast them and said, well, we are exporting these as Christian values, then they come to seem more culturally contingent to people in India or to people in Japan or whatever. If you say, well, no, they're universal, then you can you can export them. And now in Europe, when there are large numbers of people not of Christian heritage, Muslims or Hindus or Jews or whoever, it's fundamental to the, the claims that European elites make about the necessity for human rights and the necessity for a secular state that they seem neutral. So if you're saying actually they derive from Christianity, then you start to get back to the problems that Christians in the Middle Ages had with, you know, well, how do you handle Muslims, Jews, pagans or whatever? And we, we know where that leads. So that, that I think, is, is, is part of the problem. The other issue, I think, is that in Europe, as in America, we live in the shadow of the Nazis. 
And the Nazis have a key role to play in this because they were the first state since the time of Constantine, the first Christian emperor of Rome, overtly to repudiate two fundamental Christian teachings. And those two fundamental Christian teachings are the idea, firstly, that um, all human beings have a dignity, essentially by virtue of being created in the image of God. There is no Jew or Greek. All all are equal. And the other is the, the, the teaching embodied in the figure of Christ on the cross, that the weak will overcome the strong, that the victim will, will overcome the victimizer, that the powerless will overcome the powerful. And by extension, that those who are, who are, who are weak, who are poor, who are at the bottom of the pile, have a kind of moral standing with God that might be greater than the, 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 the very most powerful. The Nazis, of course, repudiate that. Of course, they think that absolutely the differences between Jews and Greeks are fundamental. Uh, and they absolutely think that the strong and the powerful should trample down the weak and indeed should euthanize them. And in the wake of, of, uh, of, the, of the Second World War and the defeat of Nazism, the shock to the West, I think, was so profound that um, in a sense, there was no longer any need for institutional Christianity. Whereas the figure of Jesus had always been the kind of moral lodestar for people in the West, even for those who were not believing Christians, after the Second World War, the moral lodestar became Hitler, because all people had to ask themselves in the West was, well, you know, what is your sense of right and wrong? People look at Hitler, and they decide whatever he believed in, we believe the opposite. Now, of course, this is in effect a distorted form of Christianity. What people find offensive in the Nazis. And we have to remember, the Nazis thought that they were right. They weren't doing it because they thought they were the baddies. They were doing it because they thought what they were doing was right. But we regard it as evil because we're so fundamentally Christian that the idea that you can divide people up into different races or that that the strong should, should, should dominate the weak does seem morally offensive to most of us. And so in repudiating the Nazis and saying, well, what do the Nazis do? We're going to do the opposite. We are kind of staying true to that Christian inheritance. But I think that, that, that now in America, as in Europe, it's, it's pretty clear that the limits of that are starting to be reached because the, the, the techniques that those who, who, who don't regard themselves as Christian but subscribe to the kind of the values you might call liberal or progressive, um, but clearly derived from Christianity, when they come up against people who don't agree with them, what 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 recourse do they have to persuade them? They can say you are a Nazi, you are a racist. But if they if, if people turn around and say I'm not, whatever, um, what what recourse do you then have to um, to, to persuade them? What the, what Christians, what people in in in, in the West had previously was this enormous legacy of um, of writings, of teachings, of stories, of doctrines, of beliefs that together constitute the kind of molten essence of Christianity. And when I say that, 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 that when I talk about the foundational myth, I don't mean myth as in the sense that it's wrong. I mean myth in the sense that Tolkien used it, the sense that this is some, you know, this is a story so profound that it kind of transcends reality. And the foundational myth of of Christianity is that a, 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 a slave tortured to death on a cross turns out to be God. 
And if you can appeal to that, then you, you can found your society on it. I suspect that over the next few decades, either we will repudiate, we, we will start to let slip the teachings that derive from that figure of, of, of Christ on the cross, or we will start, you know, atheists as much as Christians, we will start to recognize that this is where ideas that we want to think are, are universal, that we want to think are self-evident, that in fact they derive, because you know, they're not universal and they're not self-evident. Oh. Well, I want to. There's a lot I could follow up on there, but I want to push specifically on the element of the Nazis and the and the connection to the view of victimhood as power, and especially then going back to one of the more significant breaks within the Western tradition that you cite, which is Nietzsche, one of the people you see as clearly seeing through that these values are not universal. These values are owing specifically to Christianity, and therefore, of course, we know that he hated it. But it seems today that the way to seize power is precisely by claiming victimhood. That seems itself like a kind of power grab that I'm not even sure Nietzsche could have envisioned that could have been pulled off. I I think Nietzsche absolutely envisaged it. Tell me about that, then. I I think... you see, I, the, the book is bookended by two people who recognize to a, a profound degree just how shocking the notion of the crucifixion and the resurrection is. The idea that there is power in this most defeated of figures, a, a, a slave nailed to a cross. And the first, of course, is Paul, who says that it's a stumbling block to the Jews for, for, for obvious reasons and that it's um, likely to seem madness to everyone else. And the reason it seems mad to the Romans is that the Romans, essentially, it, it's the powerful who have the power. That seems self-evident to them. Um, the other person, as you say, is Nietzsche, who, who at the end of the 19th century is just as alert as Paul was to how shocking this, this, this Christian notion, the figure of Christ on the cross was. But unlike Paul, um, he's, he's, he's not kind of moved by it. He's, he's appalled by it. Because Nietzsche is a man raised in uh, the classical tradition. He begins his life as a, as, a te- as, a, as, a, as a teacher of the classical languages. And Nietzsche regrets the passing of the age of Achilles and Caesar. Uh, he sees the, uh, the Christian teaching as the triumph of those who are sickly over those who are healthy. And he regards the Christian doctrines of compassion for the poor and the weak as a kind of moral cancer that has um, corrupted the fabric of classical civilization. Nietzsche is an incredibly smart, intelligent, sophisticated philosopher. And in fact, while I was... Um, I read a huge number of, of, of Christian authors to, to, to write Dominion, but there was almost no writer who, who made me feel personally more Christian than Nietzsche, because the, the blast force of his hatred for Christianity is, in a way, the profoundest one of the profoundest tributes that anyone has ever paid it. You know, you read it, and if you feel the shock of what he's saying, it provides a test for how Christian your own assumptions are. Um, the sophistication and richness of, of Nietzsche's philosophy gets distorted horribly by the Nazis, but there is a kind of trace echo there. So if we look at Hitler himself, Hitler 
also is a great admirer of the Greeks and the Romans. Um, he, he, he marks the 2000th anniversary of Augustus's birth by going three times to Rome to see a celebratory exhibition held by Mussolini. Um, and Hitler's take on the Greeks and the Romans is that they are of Nordic stock. And this explains the, the glories of the Parthenon and of Virgil. Uh, what then goes wrong? Well, what goes wrong is that a Jew in the form of Paul turns up with his uh, cancerous teachings of compassion and cosmopolitanism. Um, and it's this that leads to the collapse of Greek and Roman civilization. And Hitler personally sees himself as committed to um, constructing an order that will kind of reproduce the glories of Greece and Rome and resurrect what he sees as a great Germanic civilization, and it will last for a thousand years. But it's only going to last for a thousand years, Hitler thinks, if he can ensure that no second Paul comes along to uh, propagate his noxious doctrines. And so this brings us to, um, I mean, the whole history of Christianity is basically a history of paradox. Almost everything about it is paradox. But perhaps the darkest, cruelest paradox of all is that Hitler targets the Jews for genocide because, among other reasons, he blames them for Christianity. And considering that the, 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 the Holocaust is, is drawing on um, profoundly negative stereotypes about the Jews that derive from Christian history, you can see how dark a paradox that is. So dark that it's not one that Christianity has recovered from. I, I, I think I think that, that the Holocaust was a, a, a kind of terrible wound to, um, well, let's call it Christian civilization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about uh, some of the positive elements, even into the 20th century post-World War II, that you identify. And one of the things you do is is help to take a narrative or a, or a sort of story and you puncture the mythology behind it, and which, I mean, sort of the manipulation of the story. You do that in the Middle Ages, Reformation period, Galileo. I mean, you, you do a lot of that within there, but then well, you there jump are a lot of myths. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of myths. And, you know, and, you know, the, actual the, sort of the, self-serving lies. Well, the thing, the thing that I found uh, writing, writing uh, the book and in the, in the responses to it is that um, everyone has myths, and, and, and myths are not necessarily false, but um, they certainly can be. And enthusiasts for the Enlightenment, enthusiasts for, uh, I don't know what we, I mean, we don't have a kind of word for, let's call it the Third Reformation. Um, they believe their myths as much as anyone. And figures like Galileo are absolutely, you know, the things that, you know, the idea that Galileo was kind of tortured by the Inquisition because he was upholding science. Pretty much every word in that sentence is a myth and not true. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's such a good example of how now that story is shared as a way of undermining Christianity as being anti-science. But you point out that that original myth developed as an anti-Roman uh, polemic yeah, about Protestant. An anti, yeah, an anti-Roman Catholic uh, perspective from Protestants in there. And the book is just infused with a lot of these, but I wanted to talk about John Calvin 
specifically. Uh, I've traveled to Geneva a number of times, and I sense that the city may not fully appreciate Calvin's role in shaping modern views of human rights and liberty. Not exactly how Calvin is remembered. I think their their preferred favorite son is, uh, is Rousseau. Uh, explain a little bit about Calvin's role in, in this Christian revolution. And, and an example that you cite in there is the end of apartheid in South Africa. And usually I, I hear Calvin cited in defense of the apartheid regime, which I don't think is fair, but you point out that, of course, that he's, you know, a, a good example of how apartheid was ultimately defeated. Uh, yes, well, um, yeah, I think I think Calvin does get quite a, a, a bad press. I mean, he's seen as this kind of finger-wagging guy telling people they're going to hell. <laughs> There's an incredibly powerful sense of uh, the the beauties of God's creation and of of, um, of, of of God's love for humanity and and for all of humanity. And um, one of the things I found incredibly striking about um, Calvin's Geneva is um, its assumption that that refuge should be offered to anyone who needs it. So famously, Calvin become uh, Geneva becomes a refuge for um, Protestant exiles from from England under the reign of Mary, but also. Um, a, a, a Jew who's seeking refuge is also offered that, and and this reflects a, a kind of idea that you know there is no Jew or Greek. Very important to Calvin, and so that's why um, when in South Africa the apartheid regime draws on um, a theology that claims that there are different races and that different races um, are drawn to God's teachings at different rates. This, uh, you know, this is couldn't really be a profounder distortion of what Calvin had actually taught. And when um, the uh, the anti-apartheid movement, of course, has you know figurehead in in, in Mandela and the other people who who end up on, on Robin Island, um, who who are the leaders of the of the armed struggle, but. There is also a struggle against apartheid that takes place in in seminaries and lecture rooms because ultimately the underpinning of the apartheid regime is theological. Um, if the people who uh, support apartheid can be brought to recognise that the theological justification for it does not exist, indeed that in the, the, the eyes of God it's positively evil, then that will essentially knock the stuffing out of the entire regime, because without self-belief, you don't have a regime. And that's why, um, you know, Mandela himself completely recognizes this, uh, and someone like the Anglican um, uh, Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, also recognizes it. Uh, and they reach out to uh, Calvinists in the, um, in the, the apartheid regime, and gradually the kind of the um the, the the buttresses and the dikes that had sustained apartheid come to be washed away and the the reason that this is that this has an incredibly significant role to play in the way that apartheid ultimately comes to be ended without bloodshed um it 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 leads to a kind of civic transfer from white supremacy to majority black rule is that both sides, because they're steeped in Christian theology, because they are familiar with the Christian story, they know the script that they have to speak. They know that um, you know the, the the apartheid regime, the 
Berter and, and, and his ministers have to acknowledge their sins and have to repent their sins. And likewise, Tutu and Mandela know that confronted by this, they have to offer forgiveness. And so it is a great Christian drama of a kind that would have been completely familiar to kings and bishops in the Middle Ages, where very similar dramas were, were, were played out. And I think that, that without that shared Christian heritage, that shared Christian language, um, the ending of apartheid in South Africa would have been very much bloodier. I'm calling you from Birmingham, Alabama, so the story right. could be much simpler where we are, um, that it simply is shocking. It should shock us that there was not a second civil war. Um, I mean, given how bad things were even 100 years after the American Civil War at the height of Jim Crow segregation, it's shocking that that didn't happen. And of course, it's another huge stain on sort of the Christian legacy uh, here in Birmingham, Alabama. And yet at the same time, of course, I would describe it as perhaps the most effective movement for social change from a Christian perspective in the 20th century was King's movement here in Birmingham. Yeah, completely. Completely, uh, and 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 I think that that in a way it's it was the law. You know, it it, it, it was an, an expression of what Protestantism in America had consistently been doing, which was people would 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 summon Americans to wake. You know, yeah. great awakenings, a series of great awakenings. And in that sense, what happens in the 50s in, in, in America is another great awakening. And Martin Luther King is speaking as a Baptist preacher, and he is summoning white Americans to a recognition that if there is no Jew or Greek, then there's no black or white. And he does it in the name of love. And love is at the heart of Martin Luther King's message because it's at the heart of Christ's message. And King says that Jesus was an extremist for love, and that's how he casts himself. And it's that language of love that enable again, it's like, I suppose, yes, I mean, it's slightly like as, as in South Africa. It, 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 you love your enemy. You love the person who persecutes you. And if the person who persecutes you can understand the theological underpinnings of what they're doing, then, then you can reach out in love as well. And essentially that's what happens over the 50s and, and the 60s. But it, I, ironically, I think it, it, the very success of the civil rights movement sets America on the course of the kind of culture wars that, that seem to be embroiling it at the moment. Because the success of the civil rights movement, um, the, this articulation of the idea that those who have been oppressed, those who have been downtrodden, have a call on those who are in power, inspires other movements, which um, can less obviously draw on, on the Christian inheritance. So one of them is feminism. And obviously that's a challenge for certain understanding of what the proper relationship between men and women should be. And the other one, of course, is gay rights. Right. Um, and, and important to emphasize that the idea of homosexuality is a very recent one. The idea of homosexuality, the idea that uh, people have a, a, you know, a, a kind of instinct towards same-sex acts, both men and women. This is a, an idea that has only existed for a, about 150 years. 
And when people talk about homosexuality in the Bible, you might as well talk about Julius Caesar conquering France. It's kind of right, but it's also very badly wrong because th there is no concept of homosexuality in the Bible. There's no concept of homosexuality in the ancient world at all. And the concept of homosexuality, you know, it's a, a word that's originally coined in Germany in the 1860s. It's, it's kind of spread to other European languages over the course of the, the second half of the 19th century. It, it, it's promoted by a, a, a devoutly Catholic um, Austro-German uh, psychologist called um, Kraft Ebbing. And in Kraft Ebbing's formulation of homosexuality, he's pairing the sin of sodomy, which again, and sodomy is only a word that gets coined in the 10th century. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's incredibly late. Um, the idea that the sin of Sodom, the reason Sodom was destroyed, well, sodomy, again, it's, it's as early as, you know, it's as late as the 6th century. So this is a very, very gradual evolution of the concept. But he says it's a sin of sodomy, but it's also the Christian virtue of, of, of lifelong monogamous love. And so he pairs in this word, he yokes them together, homosexuality, a sin and a virtue. And I think that that explains a great deal of the, the difficulties that, that Christians have in deciding what their reaction should be to homosexuality. Are they, are they interpreting it as a sin or are they interpreting it as, as, as a, a virtue? What happens in the 60s is that this talk of love encourages feminists and encourages gay rights movements to draw on exactly the same assumptions that Martin Luther King had been able to draw on, that those who were downtrodden should be able to appeal to those who are in a position of power. But it forced a kind of splintering in what we could call the cultural Christian bedrock of America. And it's, it's essentially forced those who are doctrinally Christian, those who go to church, those who believe that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And it set them against those who are culturally beholden to Christianity, who are drawing on Christian assumptions, who are making appeals to people in the certainty that the great inheritance of Christianity will ensure that their, 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 their protests and their appeals are heard. But now, in 2020, the problem is, is that neither side recognizes the kinship. But actually, I think there's a profound kinship. And all the debates, be it abortion, be it over gay marriage, be it trans rights, all of these, it, it, it's not a question of Christians fighting progressives so much as different factions within the vast body of Christian culture arguing over points of theology. Right. Well, and, and a lot of pitting Paul against Jesus. And, and and blaming Paul for a lot of these things in ways that, I mean, even go back to like you're saying there in World War II, uh, well, the problem is where everything goes wrong is with Paul. If we just got back to this concept of love, then everything would be fine in that case. I mean, I think you just cited a, a number of examples of why this book is so interesting, why this book is so provocative, uh, the examples especially of how secularism itself is a form mm -hmm. of, you know, is like is, 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 derives from Christianity, how homosexuality itself is a conversation that can only happen within a Christian 
environment about how these culture wars are not Christians versus unbelievers, um, but they are different kinds of Christians. I'll throw out a, a concept to you that makes a lot of sense in the American context. I don't know how it translates elsewhere, but we talk sometimes about the, the evangelical mainline divide, the liberal conservative divide, and it's almost in se- a sense in which both sides have won. The conservatives have yeah. won the church. They still have the people in the churches, but the liberals have won the culture. Those Christian values are now seen as universal and not Christian anymore. Their churches have emptied, but in part because they're victorious. I mean, yeah. they, you know, their values have been adopted. In, in but not, I, I absolutely agree with that, um, except, of course, that that the culture war is pretty evenly balanced, it seems to me, looking from the outside. I mean, I, I'm a, you know, within, within the churches, yes, the, the, the evangelicals have the, the won. But, but yeah, yeah I, I, and, and so, you know, I, th- I think that, um, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think, I think part of what, what makes it confusing is that whereas, um, obviously, the people in churches are entirely aware of, of, of where their, their ideas and their values and their assumptions come from, those outside the churches who nevertheless are, are profoundly shaped and influenced by Christianity, you know, it's not just that they don't recognize it, they actively repudiate often Christianity. It's a kind of weird Oedipal quality to it. <laughs> no, I think that's an, it's an accurate description. Well, I feel, Tom, that, I, I mean, given, given the treatment you gave in this book, a, a long book, but one that moves very quickly, I can't fathom the, the depths of learning that were required to be able to do that. Um, I want to know who your Sunday school teachers were growing up because they obviously taught you a thing or two um, just of really ingraining these things. I mean, these are these are things that could not be known by somebody with any kind of surface level uh, understanding of things, but must be coming at a deep level. And I just wanted to read one quick thing. And I love just how you describe Christianity the Christian revolution, I should say, as the greatest story ever told. And there's a beautiful passage in here in particular. I just want to make sure people hear from it. You write this, Christ, by making himself nothing, by taking on the very nature of a slave, had plumbed the depths to which only the lowest, the poorest, the most persecuted and abused of mortals were confined. If Paul could not leave the sheer wonder of this alone, if he risked everything to proclaim it to strangers, likely to find it disgusting or lunatic or both, then that was because he had been brought by his vision of the risen Jesus to gaze directly into what it meant for him and for the world. Well, Tom, thank you for writing Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And thanks for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.